Hello, everybody. I'm Elizabeth Archer. It's the Farm and Garden Show. Welcome back. Before I say anything else, I want to give a special shout out to my daughter, May, who is listening and who has really taken swimming to the next level this summer. I love you so much. All right, now down to business. My guest today is Greg Graziano, owner and winemaker at Graziano Family of Wines. Greg has been making wines since the 1970s. He worked with his father in their Redwood Valley vineyards and attended UC Davis to study viticulture and enology. In 1988, Greg and his wife Trudy started their own winery, the Graziano Family of Wines, which has its vineyards in Redwood Valley and its tasting room in Hopland. Welcome to the show, Greg. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. You and I don't know each other, and um, what you don't know is that many years ago, not many, how long have I been married? seven years ago my husband and I were wine tasting in Hopland and walked into your winery and walked out many hours later with 12 cases of wine for our wedding moly (laughs) (laughs) that's the kind of consumers we need so it's fun to see you in person because you were the taste of our you know the the drinks at our wedding so thank you thank you yeah um we don't often have winemakers on the farm and garden show which is funny because you know vineyards are such a huge part of farming in mendocino county so i think it's cool that we're gonna talk about wine today we're gonna specifically talk about sparkling wine but i want to do a little um background first so you started working in your dad's vineyards correct how many generations of winemakers are there in your family well actually uh, only two myself and now my daughter but far as grape growing we're four generations so my grandfather bought and his brother-in-law uh, bought a uh, hundred acres here in Calpella in 1918 so they've been we've been doing it for 104 years now. wow that's a long time yes that's definitely. quite a legacy oh yeah and you went to UC Davis, which is I, the school for winemaking. It is, and I but I didn't graduate. I was there for only a year, I know. My mother hated me for not finishing school, but I immediately... All the geniuses drop out of college. I know. So I immediately left college and uh, started Milano Winery with a friend of mine. So, But I forced my daughter to go to Davis and to graduate. Alexander graduated, so she works with us, and she's fabulous. So you forced her to go to college, and you still have a good relationship. Yes. That is excellent. Yes. <laughs> Did you always know you wanted to go in the family business? Or? Yeah, I, I think so. You know, being a little kid and working in the vineyards wasn't always the funnest thing, but it was a time to be around my dad, which was a really important thing, right? So, yeah, once I got out of high school, I knew kind of immediately what I was going to do. So I started studying agriculture and and uh, went to UC Davis and, you know, started working for uh, Cresta Blanca Winery, which was uh, owned by a bunch of grape growers here in Mendocino, including my grandfather. So I worked there for a couple of years during the harvest and then, then went to Davis after that. So. so you have quite a few labels under Graziano, and a lot of them I don't... I just want to let everyone listening know that I know very little about wine, uh, but my understanding is that you have quite a few Italian varietals. Is your ancestry Italian? Oh, of course. Uh, my family has vineyards, used to have a winery in Asti in Piemonte in northwest Italy. So um, I love Italy, been several times, and love Italian grape varieties, and love Italian wine. And I think some people call me the godfather of the Italian grape variety in Mendocino County or California because we've been doing it longer than anybody. Nice. How, like, what is the percent or the proportions of 
vineyards in the county or in the North Coast that are Italian versus French versus I don't even know what else. It's pretty small, but Mendocino County probably has more Italian grape varieties, both in variety and in acreage, than anywhere in, in uh, California. So we've really grasped it. You know, Napa's known for Cabernet. We have a lot of Cabernet and probably shouldn't. Is that French? It's French, okay, correct, cool. <laughs> correct. And, and Chardonnay, we have a lot of Chardonnay here too, which does pretty well here. But And a lot of Pinot Noir, which does well in several places here. But the Italian varieties love the heat. They love the cool nights. So they do really, really well here. Really well here. And we grow almost... Uh, over 20 different Italian varieties right now wow. ourselves wow. in our vineyards. And do you turn like do you keep all of the grapes that you grow? Do you sell any out of We we county? do both. We do both. I'm selling a lot of Italian grape varieties now to guys in Monterey and Napa and Sonoma. Interesting. Because they want them for their tasting rooms and they charge tons of money for them. You know, I always tell people when they're like I'm going to go to Napa and I say why? Come to Mendocino. You don't need reservations. Your tastings right. are free. The wine is just as good and way cheaper. It is. We are still the best kept secret in winemaking. Totally, 100%. Fortunately and sometimes unfortunately. So, you know. Sure. It's a double-edged sword. I mean, do you see that changing, though? Or? Oh, I do. There's a lot of people coming to Mendocino and uh, from all over the world they come here. And uh, because we make such great wines and because there's such great values, right? So, yeah, we're, we're getting a really good reputation. We have a lot of new wineries here now, a lot of small wineries. So that's helping quite a bit as well. So at what point will the tourists outnumber the locals? And what word can we say to skip the line? You know, I don't know. Uh, I think it's going to be a while, you know, because we're still... But, but a lot of people are leaving Sonoma and Napa, like you said, because they can't afford to go. They're tired of just drinking Chardonnay and Cabernet and... So they're looking for a lot of unique varieties, which we grow up here, right? So it's it's changing. You don't see that much Cabernet in Mendocino County, or maybe I just don't see it in the well, tasting rooms I go to. Well, we no, actually, we have quite a bit. I think maybe it's the third largest planted variety here, if I'm not oh, mistaken. Oh, interesting. It's, okay. But it really, it's just being hidden away. Yeah, but you have to remember that 65% of all the grapes that are grown in Mendocino go to Napa and Sonoma right. and parts unknown, right? So... Yeah, so and that's unfortunate, but that's just kind of the reality of what happens here. Sure. Yeah. Um, so I said at the top of the show, you know, it's farm and garden show. Vineyards are a huge part of the agricultural landscape in Mendocino County and the North Coast. How do you see vineyards fitting into the farming tapestry, basically, of our community? Well, I mean, we're growing all the time. We're planting a lot more vineyards. A lot of people from other, from Napa, Sonoma, and a lot of other places are coming here and planting vineyards because the price of land is really good, right? So that's all really good. And, and I can see that uh, uh, it's going to have a really good impact in the future of all these other people coming and planting grapes here. Right? On the future of the economy, of, of, of the winemaking. economy, of the ecology. You know, vineyards are really good for an area. Tell me about that. Well, you know, they... Because I don't think everyone would agree with you. Well, I mean, you know, they can survive a lot better than the other plant that we grow around here without water. So that's a really good the, thing. The, I mean, the C word, plant, yeah, the, yeah, cannabis. Yeah, yeah, the, cannabis. Yeah, the cannabis. Cannabis is pretty water intensive, right. that's for sure. Uh, I pers Yeah, so, you know, it's uh, they're beautiful. They create a lot of oxygen. They create a lot of work for people. Um, they create a beautiful product, wine, and uh, so to me there's really no downside of having more vineyards here. I think we have 
close to 20,000 acres. But when you consider what's happening in Napa and Sonoma, those guys have 80,000 and 50,000. And so they grow a lot more grapes than we do because they have a lot more flat land than we do. So it's easier for them to do that. But again, we could we could grow a lot more grapes here. Yeah, I mean, Mendocino County is enormous compared to, to Napa. Right, but I mean, Napa's tiny. But it's a lot of, remember, it's a lot of redwood Flat. trees yeah, and sure. a lot of hills. And, you know, those hills can make really good wine, though. So that's a good thing. So what kind of ecological practices do you incorporate into your vineyards? Well, we, we would call ourselves conventional. You know, we use some herbicides. We use some inorganic fertilizers we try not to use pesticides because i we are really changing we are in the process of becoming sustainable uh, certified in our vineyards we're working toward organic farming we're not going to be using roundup anymore we're, we're going to be using a lot of uh, natural like chicken manure fertilizers and stay away from you know inorganic kind of chemical fertilizers for many reasons. It's hard on the earth, they're very expensive, and everybody wants that. You know, my daughter and, and her boyfriend who work for us, they're younger, of course, right? So it's really important for them to to be as sustainable and organic as we possibly can, you know? And do you see that as being a trend among most vineyards in Mendocino County? I think so, 100%, especially smaller family vineyards. Sure. Yeah. And like yeah. the newer ones that are starting might just be starting from that place instead of having to change practices. Yeah, it, it's, it's more difficult when the vines are young to grow organic because we like to give them lots of water and fertilization. So it's like children, you know, you want to raise them smart, you want to raise them tough. You know, I mean, you, and fast, you know, you want to get them up and you want to get them going. And that's kind of, so as the vines get older, they're a little easier to grow organically and sustainably. And is it true that vines want to be, not abused, that's not the right word, but that they they thrive in sort of adverse conditions? Well, you know. Is I, that a myth? That's kind of a myth. I think the wines thrive more when you do that to them. Right, but they they love water, and the healthier they are, the better wines they can produce. So you just have to know what you're doing. You have to be a good farmer. But this time of year, especially, you know, we're in a years long drought that, for all intents and purposes, is going to keep going. What water conservation methods can you use on a vineyard? Well, we're we're doing things like you know we use only drip irrigation. Number one, uh, what we're doing now is we're not tilling anymore. So we used to rotivate, we used to dist our vineyards, and now we're just mowing them. So we're trying to stay off the land as much as we can. We can go much faster when we mow. We use less diesel. We compact the soil less when we go over it less. And we're learning now that perhaps rain gets into the soil much better when you don't disc it. Mm -hmm. Kind of hard to believe that this loose ground wouldn't accept the water as well as it does. It also keeps CO2 in the ground, right, when you're not... Uh, work in the soil so you know we're trying to do that we're going to see how it works so yeah i know. think the argument for that or the, the science behind it is that when you disc until you're basically killing the soil because you're disrupting its sort of natural biome and, right but and, see and the old italians believe that when you work the soil properly it would bring moisture up into the vines right and it would save water and you, it is somewhat true because you are killing a lot of the weeds that suck up that water right but if you can, you know, if you have water in drip and you're preening your vineyards so the grass does die eventually, 
seems to be working pretty well for us right now. Cool. Well, that's very encouraging. Yes. You also hear stories after fires about wildlife kind of seeking refuge in vineyards because they don't tend to burn. They're watered. Um, They are kept pretty clear. And so have you seen any evidence of that? Or is that just sort of anecdotal? Well, you know, we... We encourage a little bit of wildlife in our vineyards, you know, jackrabbits, and we have geese that hang out there in wild, and raccoons and skunks and all that kind of stuff where, you know, it doesn't hurt us to have those guys around there. Deer, unfortunately, can eat a lot of grapes. Yeah. So we like to keep them out. That's you know, fair. But all the other animals, you know, we have ways to protect young vines from, from those critters, you know, the rabbits and such. So, uh, yeah, and, and eventually, I'm sure, because my daughter and her boyfriend, they want to bring sheep into the vineyard. and oh, you know, that's I like kinda, that. Yeah. And, you know, they used to take geese in the vineyards to eat the, the, the uh, insects and some of the plants that are growing there. So, yeah, we, we're going to probably work that way, you know. Cool. It's more interesting, too, having sheep around. Yeah, it Keep is. Keep you on your toes. Exactly. <laughs> and they like raising animals. They love animals, so... <laughs> Uh, well, I'm going to, man, time's flying. I'm going to take a quick second to reintroduce us. This is the Farm and Garden Show. I'm your host, Elizabeth Archer. My guest is Greg Graziano, owner and winemaker of Graziano Family of Wines in Redwood Valley. Um, today, we're talking about all things wine, and specifically, let's start talking about sparkling wine. Sparkling wine, wine So yes. Graziano has several labels. What is the label that your sparkling wine is under? Well, we have a label called St. Gregory that was named after my patron saint, not after me, because I'm not a saint. Um, and that brand is for all the Pinot varieties. So we do Pinot Noir, we do Pinot Blanc, we do Pinot Gris, we do Pinot Meunier, and even Pinot Tage. So it was kind of natural for our sparkling wine brand to be put under that brand, our sparkling wine under that brand. So we make about five different sparkling wines, we, and every one of them is named after one, the women in my life. So we do a Brut, we do a Blanc de Blanc, we do a, a Brut Rosé, we have another, we do a Blanc de Noir, we also do a wine called Brut Scandalous, which is made from uh, Arnais and Pinot Gris and Pinot Blanc, and it's scandalous because nobody would probably ever make a sparkling wine out of that. And why did you make that sparkling wine? Well, I love all those varieties, and we ended up getting a beautiful score in the Wine Enthusiast. I think we got a 90 or 92 points for that wine. Nice. Um, and in Italy, they use Arnais sometimes for sparkling wine, so I just wanted to make something really unusual and different. Now, remember, in Champagne, there are seven you know, uh, grapes you can use for Champagne. Most people only know the three, Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, and Pinot Meunier, but you can use... Pinot Blanc, you can use Pinot Gris as well. And then there's one, I think, Petit Mansang, and there's another one that I'm, I can't remember. But legally, you can use seven different grapes. Arbin, I think it is. So you can use seven different grapes in Champagne. Okay, you say legally. Legally, yeah. So what, I don't know anything about sparkling wine, except I like to drink it, and I don't like it too sweet, and that it tends to be more expensive. And so we'll talk about that a little later. But when you say legally, you can use seven varietals, what does that mean? That means that you're not allowed to produce in Champagne, France, in that district, in that region. Got it, in Champagne. But if you're in, you know, if you're in Alsace, you can make what they call Cremant, from anything. If you're in the Loire, you can use Chenin Blanc and Sauvignon Blanc. If you're in Lemoux, which is in southern France, where they, where a sparkling wine maybe started even before Champagne, you, they have other varieties there that you can use. So you can use any varieties in the world. They make 
a sparkling wine out of these Greek varieties, beautiful varieties. In Mavro in Greece, they, they use Nebbiolo in Italy. They use Falangina and all, all these things. And you can do any kind of varieties. So Champagne itself is a region in France, and it's also a little bit of, not, I'm not going to say a controversy, but it's, you know, you have to call sparkling wine from Champagne Champagne, and no other sparkling wine may be called Champagne. That's correct. How, I'm sure in the wine world, that's a really big deal. But when I walk into your tasting room and I say, I want to taste some Champagne, like how much of a faux pas am I committing? Well, not not a big one, really, but you know... <laughs> We don't call our wine champagne. We call it sparkling wine, and right? And what happens if someone outside the champagne region tries to call it champagne? Well, it's illegal. I mean, there but are... who's th- making these laws? Well, th- there are this laws from... This is a complex the, world. Yeah, there's laws from the European Union, and then there's also laws in our country as well that there are certain winemakers here, Corbell and Gallo, they, you know, they've been doing it so long, their, their word champagne got grandfathered in so they can call their wine actually champagne no so there is a couple champagne lobby for the the old big wineries for the old big wineries correct exactly so we wouldn't do that we call our wine method traditional or you can actually legally call it method method champenois when you make it in this particular method there are basically two methods to make sparkling wine there's the charmant method or the it was a mini this guy in italy started it in in the late uh, 1700s Manetti I believe his name was and he started the Charmant process which this guy in France shortly after that kind of made it a little bit better and now it's called the Charmant method where it's like champagne it's made in a tank though not in the individual bottles like champagne is okay wait back up how is champagne made? It's usually well, made in individual bottles. Yeah. That surprises me. Well, basically what it is is that the wine is made like normal wine in a tank. Then it's transferred into bottles and, and yeast is added and sugar so it referments in the bottle. And that's what makes it bubble. The, right. That's method traditionnel or method champenois. Where so the when char- you put it into the bottle... It's not sparkling yet. No, it's There's not. There's no fizz. There's no fizz, correct. So you put it in, you add the yeast and the, and sugars, the sugar, and, and then you cork it, and you put that metal thing on it yeah, so the, it won't the, explode. Yeah, the cap. The, yeah. So in Charmont, they do the same thing. They take a big tank, they make wine with it, and then they add sugar and yeast in that big tank, right? So it ferments. It's a kept closed tank, so all those bubbles from fermentation are captured within that tank, then they add more sugar to make it sweeter. That's how Prosecco is made. Okay. Yeah, and a lot of the inexpensive sparkling wines made in America are made that way as well. It makes a fruity wine, but not a very complex wine. So why is that less expensive? To well, do it because that way? You, because because you're not the, adding the individual bottles. Yeah, and yeah. you have to have all this really specialized equipment, you know, dosagers and and. Yeah, I mean, it's cost millions of dollars to buy this machinery to make sparkling wine. You've got the dosage machines. You've got the machines that shake it up. You've got the corkers and the cappers and the foilers and the labelers. And, I mean, yeah, it's, it, and it's really... And the neck freezers and all the bins that all the champagne bottle go to this. And every... The bottles are heavier, so they're more expensive. The capsules are longer, so they're more expensive. The corks are more expensive. So everything, and and we're really crazy because a lot of sparkling wines are maybe 18 months. That's the legal law in Champagne. It has to be in the bottle before you can call it Champagne. 
we leave ours in bottles for as, as much as five to ten years. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, and that costs a ton of money to do that. But we believe it really makes a better sparkling wine that way. Okay, so tell me about that. Because when I use my soda stream and make a bottle of fizzy water <laughs> right. and I put it in the fridge, it gets less fizzy with time. So what happens between like 18 months and five years? Or 10 years. Well, what happens is the bubbles get really smaller and they complex into the wine. So what happens is you get this really, what I call, the French call it the mousse. It gives you a very, very creamy mouthfeel from all the really small bubbles that have been in there for a long time. But more importantly, though, you get a lot of complexity from the yeast that's in those bottles. It's called tirage. So it's in tirage. So that gives the wine the yeasty, creamy, complex flavors that you get when you leave it on in the bottles for that long. Interesting. Yeah, but it's very expensive so to do that. what's too long for champagne? Well, it depends on the wine. I mean, you have to have very low pHs. You have to have very high acidities to be able to do it that way or else the wine won't last. So our pHs are very low. Our acidities are very high compared to probably 95% of all sparkling wine made in America. They're much more like French wines. So we get that by harvesting the grapes early, like most people do. But Potter Valley, where we have our vineyards, where we make sparkling wine, is a very good place. It's as good or maybe even better than the Anderson Valley to make sparkling wine. See, people think that you have to be close to the ocean to be cold. Remember, Champagne's not anywhere near the ocean. It's a continental climate. It's warm in the days, but it's very cold at night, and they have a lot of frost there. Potter Valley is a lot like that as well, right? It's similar to Champagne. So we oftentimes pick our Champagne grapes, or sparkling wine grapes, if you will, <laughs> later than they even, even do in Anderson Valley. So we're more like, we pick our grapes in kind of the same time frame as they do in Champagne in Potter Valley. Which is when? About the middle of September. There's guys in Napa and Sonoma that are picking sparkling wine grapes at about 19, 18, 19 sugar in August. Okay, wait, 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 back up. And, and early August. What does 18, 19 sugar mean? Well, those are, those are degrees of sugar. They call bricks, right? So normally when we make red wines, we pick them 23 sugar, 23 bricks, maybe 25. So when you're making sparkling wine, you want a lot less sugar because you want higher acid and lower pH. So when the, grape get, when the grapes get ripe, the acid goes down, right? And the pH goes up. Interesting. So you want high acid, low pH wines to make really good sparkling wines. So the older a grape, the more sugary it is, basically. Not, not no. no. I mean, you mean uh, time-wise, yes. Right. right, right. Like, like if you leave it on the vine longer. Right, you get more sugar. You get more sugar, That's which correct. makes sense. Yeah, it gets sweeter. That part right. makes sense to me. Okay, right. I'm with you. I'm back with you. Right. <laughs> How do you measure the sugar in a grape? Well, we have these things called refractometers and hydrometers. That so, sounds like something that use light to measure. Correct, correct. We dip it in the sugar and we hold it up to the light and it tells us how sweet the grapes are or how sweet the juice is. Right. Interesting. And the same thing, you can put it in, in these beakers, you know, and then you can float these hydrometer things in them and it'll tell you how sweet the juice is as well. Who figured this out? I don't know, a bunch of scientists. I'm not a scientist, you know. I'm, <laughs> I hate chemistry, but I, you know I know how to do all the tests. I always learned how to do those, but I hate the chemistry part of this business, where my daughter is really good at it. That's good. Yeah, it's good to have diversity right. and skills. But, but you know, making wine is kind of like a chef. You know, there are some of the greatest chefs in the world never went to culinary school, 
because it's all about who you mentor with. And I was lucky. I've worked for a lot of really good winemakers, worked at a lot of places, learned a lot of things by doing them. I have so many questions from the things you were just like rattling off. First of all, going way back, why does a champagne bottle have to be heavier than, well, a, than a not sparkling bottle? Simply because it'll blow up because okay. of all the pressure okay. that's inside. Good yeah. yeah, and they learned through the, through the years that there was a lot of blown up bottles when they started making sparkling wines. They started making sparkling wines in the late 1600s, all right? So, and perfected it as time went on. So, you know, they, they figured out that if you didn't have a heavier bottle, it was going to blow up, and that's not a good thing. And does it, you, I notice that most sparkling wine bottles have a very particular shape. Does the shape of the bottle influence, or is that just kind of like the no, aesthetic? It's, it, that's, it's, it's both, but it's really important because the yeast that, that's in those bottles, when you, when you turn them and shake them so the yeast goes down through the neck, so you can disgorge it so all the yeast goes out of it. If it had a shoulder on it, that yeast wouldn't fall out of it very easily. So they need that nice tapered shape, right? Interesting. So the yeast can get down to the neck. I mean, how often are you shaking up a bottle of champagne before well, you, you sell it? You, you don't. Only when, when you get ready to, to put the cork in and add the dosage is when you have to do that. And they have, okay. big, they have big machines that do that now. And then how do you store the bottles? Well, they're stored in bins. In, right, but like on their side, are they yeah, on the, down? They're they're on their side. They're on their side in a cool dark in cool dark cellars. Right, we store all of our stuff at Rack and Riddle, which is a sparkling wine facility, because they have the perfect temperature control there. They have all the machines. So what we do is we make the wine to our specifications, then we send it down there, and then they bottle it and they store it. And for as long as I want. So I try the wines all the time and I go, hmm, I think it's getting ready or if I want to leave it a long time. But that's very expensive because they charge me a lot of money to do that. Where is Rack and Riddle? It's in Hillsburg. Okay. Yeah. So not not a bad drive. No, no, no. It's but a, if you're storing wines for a decade. Yeah, for a decade. It's extremely expensive. Wow. Oh, yeah. So a 10-year-old bottle of champagne is going to set me back more than an 18-month bottle oh, of yeah. champagne. Oh, and, yeah. And that's why Cristal... And that's, you know, that's why uh, Dom Perignon, which are, a lot of those are like 10 years in tirage on the yeast. So that's why that one reason those cost so much money. What's the longest you've ever kept a bottle of champagne before drinking it? Now, is this one that I made or one that I... Both. Oh, both. Um, you know, I've had some, I think the oldest sparkling wine I had was a 2002, and it was wonderful. When did you open it? Oh, God, probably, hmm, I'm trying to remember, probably eight years ago, you know, so, I mean, but those wines are great, you know, I mean, there's those guys that are doing those vintage champagne wines, like Salon, or, you know, Dom Perignon, which is not one of my favorites, but it's, it's really good. It has the reputation. And Krug is my favorite. Okay. Bollinger is another favorite of mine, so I... I periodically will spend a bunch of money and get those wines and drink them, right? It's so interesting to me that you have all of this wine at your disposal and you're still, you know, dropping bills on other people's wine, but I guess it makes sense. It's a professional well, and an enjoyable activity. Yeah, I buy about uh, eight cases, nine cases of wine every year from Europe, from all over Europe, because I drink more 
European wine than I drink California wine. I know that sounds really weird for a California. Scandal. I know, Greg, you I can't know. say the quiet part out loud. <laughs> I, know. I know. It's true. That's how you learn, right? So if you're going to make really good sparkling wine, you need to l- drink a lot of champagne. Also, you need to, to read a lot of books, right? So I've got about 10 sparkling wine books and champagne books and read all of them and learned as much as I could. And I used to, I worked for Scharfenberger for a very short time when they were in Ukiah. So, Oh, I didn't know they were ever in Ukiah. Yeah, they, they were in Ukiah when John Scharfenberger started it. And now Scharfenberger and Rotor are right next to each well, other they, practically? Rotor it owns, the same? it's the same company. Got it. Yeah. Got it. Uh, yeah. We had a case of Rotor at our wedding. It's good stuff. It was good. Yeah, yep. <laughs> I might have hidden a bottle or two away from my uh, thirsty guests. <laughs> yeah, they, they're they're a great winery, and uh, they, you know we make some of the best sparkling wines in all of California here in Mendocino. So, would you say it's a fussy wine? Oh, it is. But one of the great things about sparkling wine is when you make it in this method, you really have three opportunities to to fix the wine. Okay. You know, to make it when you make the base wine, right? Then when you put it in bottles, you have another chance to add things to it, to do things with it, all right, to make it better. Then the third time you, you can mess with it is when it's disgorged and you do the dosage. So you can add color, you can add acidity, you can add, uh, you know, more different wine. You can do all kinds of fun things in that last part of the winemaking process. Have you ever had something that you got to that third stage and you just hadn't been able to fix it and so you just did something really weird to it no but i have tweaked uh some of our sparkling wines in that very third process you know maybe added a little more color to a rosé maybe added a little bit more obviously more sugar because that's the time you add that dosage to give the wine it's a little bit of sweetness that it needs otherwise it would be way too dry for 90 percent of the people that drink sparkling wine right how do you add color well, you, you add just tiny, tiny amounts of red wine or rosé wine to the wine to give it more color. <clears throat> Excuse me, in that, in that final application of the dosage. So I've heard, here's an opportunity to educate me and others, that the lighter a rosé, the sort of like drier it it will be is that, that no. that's not true no he's no, rolling his eyes at no, me that's people. not true but we <laughs> not really you're being very kind i personally am very traditional i like my my rosés whether they're dry or sparkling to be very pale although there's you know in, in italy they make some really nice rosés that have more red color to them um, but i'm kind of that real pale kind of color guy and what is it indicative of a pale rosé versus like a, a rosier rosé well uh, less ripe grapes perhaps or made in a different method you know there's different all kinds of different ways to make rosé right so the paler it is usually shows less skin contact time maybe a more delicate wine so that's kind of what i look for you know. So it's not that paler is drier. No, not it's at all. It's just that it's maybe it's more better. delicate. It's maybe more <laughs> delicate, right? And, and I think it's kind of prettier, if you will. You know, when it's that beautiful, light salmon color. I mean, anytime I pick a rosé, I just pick the lightest one. Okay. Because I have found, for my palate, which again, not sophisticated, that the darker a rosé, it feels sweeter to me. Yeah, it it oftentimes isn't, but it may be a little heavier. It may have more tannins in it. Yeah. 
Definitely. So I just don't know what I'm talking about, but I know what I like. Well, but you know what you like, and that's the that's important. That's what matters. That's the important thing, right? <laughs> and you need to drink a lot of a lot of different wines to find out what you do like exactly. Oh, this is a fun conversation. My guest today is Greg Graziano. Um, Greg owns and makes the wines for Graziano Family of Wines. I am Elizabeth Archer. This, of course, is the Farm and Garden Show. Um, Let's open up the phone lines if you have burning questions about champagne or wine. I think Greg could answer just about any question. Give us a call, 707-895-2448. Um, until then, let's keep talking. I want to mention that the reason specifically we're talking about sparkling wines, because I think we could have chosen literally any wine topic and filled an hour, um, but there's a sparkling wine festival coming up. It's at Terra Savia. Is that how you pronounce it? Savia. Savia. I always see the accent over the I. Right. Terra Savia in Hopland. It's on Saturday, August 6th, so coming up uh, from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. There are nine sparkling wine producers participating, as well as Gowan's Hard Cider, Mendo Ferments Kombucha, so just, you know, a day of bubbles. Um, There's also going to be food from Left Coast Seafood. They're going to make paella and some other yummy things. And music from the band that I book for all of my events, the Back Porch Project, Americana Folk Rock. Uh, Really lovely listening. And it just sounds like a super fun time so can you tell me about the history of the sparkling wine festival have you done it before yeah i think we've done three of them but you know since covid they it got shut down for a couple years right the normal thing that happens when you have a pandemic like that they yeah they shut things down for a while rightfully so but sadly right no it's a great event uh we have a good time there's really nice wines there and and the food's always really good and chance to talk to sometimes the producers will be there so i'll be there for a short time my daughter will be there so one of the other things i'd like to say that you know i've been doing this for 45 years but i'm really only as good as the people that work with me and my assistant jason boatwright is a great winemaker he's been with me for over 20 probably 25 years my daughter's been with me now, got a time goes by, probably over five, six years now. So she's kind of his assistant, and she's just fabulous. You know, she's, she's doing really, really well. So, again, you know, we've, you know, you learn a lot when you do it. And both of them have learned an incredible amount from me, and I learned an incredible amount from other people. We have a call. Hi, caller. Whoops. Hi, caller. You're live on the air. Hi there, this is Lisa. Hi Lisa. Hi there. Hey, I just learned that there was an international canned canned wine competition just happened in Boonville. And I'm and they and they had a and they have a whole sparkling category and I'm so interested in canned wine and I wonder if you could say a little something about that for all of us who really know nothing about it good question thanks for the call well you know canned wine is a whole nother animal i mean i was a a judge at maybe last year's canned wine thing and we did some i was a judge at another wine thing and we tasted some canned wines down in sonoma county um canned wines are hard to make and not every kind of wine can work in a can and we learned that because we made some canned wines ourselves, and they they weren't the, the most successful thing i've ever done i'll say that but it's really difficult to make wine and put it in a can beer's a lot easier right why? tell me why well why because sometimes because of the acidic nature of wine and the sweetness of wine sometimes it reacts with 
the liners in the cans. Because there's no oxygen that ever gets in those cans, you can have problems with reduction, which the wines can be kind of stinky with time, right? So, so yeah. they don't have a good shelf life is what you're saying. Yeah, normally they you would think they would because they're airtight. Don't put it in the bunker. Yeah, it's I, I don't think they have a really good shelf life. And again, certain wines do not work very well in cans. They just don't. What wines work better than others? Um, red wines seem to work pretty good. We had pretty, you know, but softer red wines, not wines with a lot of tannins. Kind of wines that are ready to drink right now kind of wines, right? With low acid, kind of higher pHs, those kind of wines, and, and not sweet, of course, you know, with not a lot of tannins, a little more fruitiness. Those kind of wines work all right. Is the Sparkling Wine Festival that's happening on August 6th any kind of a competition? No, no. It's just for people to come in and try all these sparkling wines and have some good food with them. Got right? it. Yeah. And so there are nine producers. Are they all Mendocino County producers? They're, they're, all, produ- they're all from Mendocino County. There's Scharfenberger, Roeder, Teresavia. There's uh, Ravino, Handley Cellars, Jackson Keys, Greenwood Ridge, and, of course, Graziano Family of Wines. Cool. I, you know, I didn't realize that we had so many sparkling wine producers in the county. Well, again, what, what's happened is because of Rack and Riddle, it's made it easier for, for people to produce sparkling wines. And some people, they actually will sell you wines that they've already bottled, and they will sell those to you, and you can put your label on them if you want. Cool. So some people do that as well. So then if you're buying someone else's wine, you're just testing that the quality is up to your standard, that it's in the price range you are comfortable selling it. Correct. Correct. Yeah. And as long as you're not calling it a state wine, you're you're good to go. It's no problem. Exactly. Yeah. People, I don't think listeners necessarily realize how common it is to to buy grapes that someone else grew and and make wine with it. Yeah. We sell bulk wines Mm -hmm. to people that we make, you know, and I make wine for other people and... We might sell those wines to other wineries. So if, you know, if I make too much of something and I want to sell it, I can sell it to another winery. So we do a lot of that as well. And then is it typical for those wineries to just bottle it as is or do they do their own blends? It, it, both ways. Whatever. Both, whatever they need. Whatever they need. Exactly. It happens both ways. So it's really just, if it says a state wine, obviously that means you grew it there, you bottled it there, you sell it there? Well, this is kind of simple. If you want to look on the back of the bottle, if it says produced and bottled by, you can tell 95% of that wine was actually fermented and produced and bottled by that winery. If it says made, or if it says vinted, or if it just says bottled by, there's a very good chance that they didn't make that wine. Interesting. Yeah. Labeling is so important, and you have to know the little secrets. It is. So my husband and I run a beekeeping business, and with honey, there's quite a few honey packers, um, because California honey is pretty rare. It's really hard to get California honey from the North Coast, and so a lot of honey comes from the Central Valley, which is fine. That's still pretty local. But if you look on the back of a label, and it says packed by... Or, you know, packed in Mendocino County. You know that honey is not from Mendocino County. So did did we answer the question of... From the caller on the I mean, I'm so sorry, caller, but it sounds like you should just keep buying bottles of wine. Canned canned wine, unless you want a soft red. They're they're good to go on camping trips with, or they're good (laughs) to have by the pool because the bottle... No glass. Yeah, no glass, you know. So they can... Yeah, I've had a couple good ones. Yeah, it's possible. You're backpedaling a little bit. You're like, no, no, no. Well, 
Not all canned wine is trash. No, it's not. No, not at all. There, there are some good canned wines. Just it, reds. It's just, well, no, you can do some good other things, but it's more difficult sometimes, sure. right? So what did you do with your canned wines that, in your words, weren't as successful? Well, we, we made a Moscato, you know, which mm-hmm. we thought everybody was going to love. And, and, but it, because it, it just was too sweet and we had to keep a little bit too much sulfur in that kind of wine, it just didn't age very well and it started to get reduced, right? And we made a red one that I thought was very good. I thought that one, because it was a softer red, it did really well. And uh, the rosé we made, you know, it didn't age as well in the can as I would have liked. So safe to say this is not going to be a key pillar of your business moving Not, not of my business, but other people, you know, yeah, I just can't do everything. I make 30 different wines. I make sparkling wines. I make sweet dessert wines. I just, you know, I, I'm, I just can't do everything. What's your favorite wine to make? Well, I do really enjoy making sparkling wine. That's that's one of my favorite things, and I just love a lot of these Italian red varieties that we produce, right? These unique things. And um, But, you know, I like growing grapes as much as I like anything, so growing the grapes for me is as fun as making the wine, right? And and tracking that back is, is really fun. When you see the grapes out in the vineyard and you've grown them, and then you turn that into wine, and it's like, wow. that And you go... Now I know I work so hard in the vineyard because it really showed in the wine. It's nice to have such a tangible output of your labor. Yes, definitely. I can see the the allure of that for sure. Um, what a fun conversation. It's really nice to have you here. Give us a call if you have questions about wine. 707-895-2448. Um, again, we've covered so much ground, and I have some unresolved questions. So I want to go back a little bit to why sparkling wine is significantly more expensive. Sure. Well, and well, I think you've covered it. I mean, it sounds well, like a complicated process, but is there are there other factors at oh, play? Oh, definitely. Well, you have to be, you have to press the grapes in the whole form as whole clusters, so you can't machine harvest the grapes. It just doesn't work. You also, when you when you press out the grapes, you cannot press out a hundred percent of the grapes and use that for sparkling wines, because the more you press it the more the acidity goes down in the grapes and the more the pH goes up in the, in the juice. And the bitter, the more bitter it gets, the more tannins it extracts. So really, you can, you, know, you can get 160 gallons of wine out of a ton of grapes. When you make sparkling wine, you can really only get like 110 gallons, maybe 120 if you stretch it a little bit. So you've got to take the remainder of that wine and put it somewhere else and maybe you put it in your cheap red blend or maybe whatever, but you can't use that for your sparkling wine. So you're getting less right off the bat. You're getting less right off the bat. You can't machine harvest it. It takes more time to whole cluster press it. It takes more time to do everything. And then we chose the model to barrel ferment all of our wines. When I was drinking champagne, I love Krug, I love Bollinger. Those wines are all fermented in their oldest French oak barrels, right? We have thousands of barrels in our winery, so, and I like those wines. They were my favorite, so I said, that's the way I'm going to make my wine. So when you ferment white wines or sparkling wines in barrels, it's very expensive. It's a lot less expensive to do it in a big stainless tank, right? So that costs more money as well. You have all those barrels. You have all that labor to deal with all those barrels. You're stirring the yeast in the barrels. You're leaving it in there maybe for about eight months. 
So you're having to top the wine more. You're having to do everything is more expensive, even in that stage, when you make the wines like we do, which are barrel fermented in neutral white French burgundy barrels. And how long does a barrel last? Well, they'll last for, you know, 30, 20, 30. I mean, there's barrels that are tanks that are hundreds of years old, right? But it's hard to take care of them for that long, uh-huh. right? And the wood does de- denigrate, so they don't last forever. And can you, like once a barrel is committed to one varietal, do you always need to use that barrel? No, 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 no. You can even use red barrels for some white wines. Color doesn't really come out of them very, very easily. We would often ferment rosés in red barrels. And we never had any problems doing that. Hmm. Yeah. So champagne... It, like you said earlier, it's a little bit fussy. It right. takes a lot of work. You don't get as much out of it. Right. And every, like I, like I said, the corks, the capsules, the bottles, the labels, everything is more expensive. Yeah. How do you get those? Because when you pop a bottle of champagne, you can never get that cork back, and it's enormous. So no. how do you get that in? Well, you don't. Whenever you take it out, you just use a champagne bottle stopper. No, no, no. I know, oh. but originally... Oh, well, they have these machines that squeeze... It's like compressed. Oh, it really yeah. squeezes those corks down, and then it shoves it in the bottle. <laughs> so don't try that at home, folks. No. We have another call. <laughs> Hi, caller. You're live on the air. Yeah, can you hear me okay? Yes, I can. All right, great. I really appreciate the show. Um, I have a, a kind of general uh, question that pertains to all farmers. Um, that I've heard that if you start running low on water and you dig a well, um, there was a recent executive order passed by Governor Newsom that says all new wells cannot be used for agricultural purposes. And I'm wondering if our farmer guest today has heard anything about that um, and also would like to just bring that to the community's attention for anyone interested in local food. Um, any new well mm. is you cannot be using it for agricultural purposes. Yeah, you know, I've not heard that. Um, I hadn't either. <clears throat> you know, I think the government is too far-reaching in our lives, and this is another example. But yeah. that being said, people do abuse things, you know. I mean, if we let everybody do exactly what they want, They'll just destroy the environment. They'll suck all the water out of the ground, and they'll do whatever. So there needs to be a certain amount of of control and regulation, but sometimes there's just way too much. Yeah, yeah. So, I, you know, anyone who's interested, look up. It's N as in Nancy, dash 7, dash 22. Okay. And That's like the bill organizing. number or the, the law number? Yeah, it's Executive Order N, as in Nancy, dash 7, dash 22. And I, I actually have a copy of this um, of the letter that the Mendocino County of Environmental uh, Health um, sends out when you dig a new well. And it's, you know, if we're going to have a serious conversation about local farms and local food, um, this is something that we really need to address here. And yes, I totally it sure agree. is. We've got we to have some kind of monitoring, some kind of uh, limitation, but this is too far. Yeah, I agree with you. Totally. Thanks for bringing that Thank to our you so attention. Much. You got it. Bye. Take care. I hadn't heard that. I haven't either. And and again, like I said, we do need to to monitor things and control things, but sometimes they just go way overboard. And that's, you know, the good news, bad news about California. Sometimes I think we just do too much, you know, like the the water boards are very difficult to deal with and you know, it's uh, it's crazy to me that the oceans are flooding, 
but they won't let us store water. You know, and you could use, you could build dams, and if you did it properly, it could be good for the fish, and you could create hydroelectric power. You always have to think about all those things, and you have to do it right. Yeah. But just to say no, 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 you can't do that is ridiculous to me. I will say, plug for California, it is the state of the union where you are least likely to die from gun violence. (laughs) So sometimes overreaching does benefit us. Yes, yes, I would agree. You know, water is such a fraught topic, and it's only going to continue to be a fraught topic as, you know, climate change is real, drought is here. um, But that doesn't mean we aren't going to have water. I think that's it gets lost a lot how much water we waste oh no doubt about it like how we have so much water we just use it really badly right um and i would say you know i think ukiah is a really interesting model for you know wastewater reclamation the purple pipe project is reusing lots of water and projects you know ukiah doesn't place water limitations on its residents like redwood valley gets and brook trails gets and maybe we should but well they have really good wells there you know that helps too yes and the ukiah valley because of the way it's shaped and all the creeks and rivers and everything that go into it is pretty fortunate i think it has a pretty you know really good aquifer underneath it yeah but it's sort of a combo right like ukiah's made good investments in water and also is lucky in water right correct but there's lots of ways that we could be using less less water. In my own house, we could be using oh, yeah. less water. So uh, no, no doubt about that. I, I feel like as the world feels like it's it's crumbling in many ways around us, there are worse natural crises to face than than drought, because there you know it's never going to stop raining entirely. Right. Um, and but but we do things like in the vineyard. We you know in our new vineyards that we planted, we use a certain rootstock called 1103 Paulson, and the Italians use the St. George rootstock. They're very vigorous, drought-resistant rootstocks, right? So you have to do that sometimes to prepare for the future because who knows whether you're going to get those rains and be able to use that water. So you've got to use the right rootstocks that, that will help you get through that. Sure. Um, well, that took an interesting turn, but I always love to talk about water. <laughs> <laughs> We're coming close to the end of the show, and I just want to um, ask you... What is your absolute favorite bottle of champagne you've ever consumed? Mm, that I've ever had. Ever, ever, ever had. Ever, and ever. how much did it cost? Well, um, I've had a lot of Krug. I love Krug champagne. Where does Krug... I, I, I don't know Krug. Where does that come from? Yeah, it's... Sounds uh, German. It's no. Well, they were Germans, okay. you know, many, 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 many years ago, and... And it's probably one of the most prestigious champagnes in the world. It, it's, they're wonderful stuff. And the that other sounds ones... Sounds expensive, it, Greg. It is, the, the good ones are very... I think their basic one that they make is like $165 a bottle. That's their cheapest one, right? Uh, Salon is another incredible, incredible uh, producer, uh, incredible wine. And um, I had a magnum of Cristal, Rotor Cristal. <laughs> No, normally not one of my favorite wines, but I tell you what, that Magnum of Rotor Cristal, I think it was it was pretty old. It might have been in the 80s, I was trying to think, actually. Man, that was stunning. <laughs> that was like one of the best things I've ever had. Where did you pick that up? Well, I didn't pick it up. My, my local distributor had it because he sells Rotor, and uh, 
he brought it uh, we went over to his house and uh, he opened it up and man that stuff was unbelievable yum I'm, I'm gonna have to I don't remember what vintage it was but it was an older vintage and it was fabulous this is really making me um, happy that I for Christmas we got a, a bottle of GoldenEye sparkling mm-hmm. for our for a Christmas a, a party present actually um, and I've been camping on that and I think maybe I'll open it tonight sounds good it's it seems like a perfect day it's hot out it's well it would have been nice to have them at the festival we'll have to maybe try to get get them in the festival next year so if there are nine participants that are local how many wineries would you say in the area are making a sparkling there's only a couple more okay yeah there's probably only two more them and probably one other or two maybe two others well navarro makes a very good one um i don't know why they're not involved here that you know navarro makes very good wines and and they um they make one as well. I've had their sparkling wine. They don't make it every year. And it's very long tirage like ours, right? So we've been making sparkling wine for about 10 years now. So so do you have any 10-year-old bottles in storage? I, I do. I do. And do you sell those? No, they're in our library. And, and they're doing pretty well. <laughs> but again, I find that the longer we leave the wines in tirage, the better they age. That's really important to have that yeast contact for all those years. It really helps the wines age. How long is Cooks aging their champ- their sparkling wine? Oh, maybe for days. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, literally days? Well, I wouldn't say that. Are there things you can do to sort of simulate age or, you know, to well, create bubbles faster? It's, it's pretty hard in, in sparkling wines to do that. I mean, that's not the point. But you can get a bottle of wine. Cooks for like eight bucks at the gas station. Yeah, well, you know, the other so they're thing, doing something cheap and well, fast. Well, yeah, the, the grapes are the big part of that and the volume. Sure. What's amazing that people don't realize about sparkling wine is we, we have to pay a tax to the government, right? An excise tax. So when, when it gets out of bond, we have to pay a tax. Well, if you're a small winery, it's like seven cents a gallon, right, that we get. If you're a larger winery, it's a dollar seven. If it's under 16%, they, they give smaller wineries a, a discount. Sparkling wine is $3.40 a gallon. Why? Because the government, I guess they think it's some sort of luxury thing, so they tax the holy hell out of it. Interesting. And that's one reason why sparkling wines, again, so are more expensive. expensive, is because of the tax structure. Huh. I never would have. So they need to change that. that. It's yeah. stupid. It's a dumb law. Call your Congress people. Exactly. Now, is that a federal law, or is that something California? No, could it's change? it's federal, but also Cal- we pay a California excise tax on wine. It's twenty cents, and on sparkling wine, it's thirty cents. Hmm. So even the state tax is more. Sparkling wine, unfair yeah, taxes, but. Really? worth the price of admission yeah. and speaking of admission you can go to the sparkling wine festival at terra savia in hopland on saturday august 6th there's going to be food music sparkling wine sparkling hard cider i guess cider is sparkling so that's redundant uh kombucha and at terra savia it's a pretty big open space for folks who are still being uh you know covid cautious and um the weather looks pretty great so it sounds like a fun time. Thank you so much, Greg, for well, joining thank you me today. For having me. It's been a real pleasure. This has been a fun show. I am Elizabeth Archer. This is the Farm and Garden Show. On next Thursday, Casey O'Neill will join us with the next installment of his very cool podcast. And then in two weeks, I will be back with another fun guest. So until then, stay easy out there, everybody, and stay tuned for Democracy Now!
This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.